Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel at the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Tyson, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Colorado Denver, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Carrie Fictor, Robert Talese, and Alexis McLeod. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Dalek Hussein Zaidigan, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Emory University. Her book, Kant's Non-Ideal Theory of Politics, is just out from Northwestern University Press. In Kant's Non-Ideal Theory of Politics, Hussein Zeidigan analyzes Kant's political writing by attending to the role of history, anthropology, and geography in his thought. She shows that Kant employs teleology as a means to orient us within the chaotic contingency of experience in order to plan and navigate a path to just political orders from our current conditions. Teleology, far from functioning as a deterministic principle in Kant's work, provides a way to think through issues such as the importance of our historical narratives, cultural differences, and geographic limitations for politics. Hussein Zaidigan argues that Kant proposes cosmopolitanism as the proper path for politics, not because it is itself a political ideal, but because, given where we've been, what we're capable of, and the conditions in which we act, cosmopolitanism offers the most promising means of achieving the ultimate aim of politics, which is peace. Further, Hussein Zaidigan shows that understanding the relationship of non-ideal to ideal theory in Kant's work exposes how Eurocentrism, racism, and sexism operate in his political theory, and how we can and must theorize differently. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy, Dalek. Hi, Sarah. It's good to Um, be here. Thanks so much for joining us today. Um, I thought I'd start with having you tell us a bit about yourself, um, your background as a philosopher, and your interests in how you came to write this particular book. Uh, Thanks, uh, first of all, for inviting me. I'm very excited to talk about my book with you. Um, So I'm currently an associate professor of philosophy at Emory University. Uh, I was born and raised in Istanbul, Turkey. I did my PhD at DePaul University in Chicago. And um, my background in philosophy was analytic um, while I was in Turkey. But then my PhD training has been in continental philosophy, especially in sociopolitical philosophy. Um, I always wondered, I mean, the things that brought me to this book are kind of um, different, but my interests have always been sociopolitical philosophy, especially the under-researched areas such as non-ideal theory or feminist political theory, decolonial political theory, etc. Um, I was just struck by even in undergraduate and graduate education, why Kant is so pervasive in all philosophy after Kant? Like, why is it kind of the bread and butter of all philosophy, Kant and Kantianism? And I came to this book, I guess, in two different ways. One is a question within Kant's scholarship. The more I have read Kant's scholarship on Kant's political philosophy, the more I realized no one was wanting to touch the question of teleology. 
which was interesting to me because Kant is a systematic philosopher. He thinks all critiques work together uh, and teleology is a part of his system, an essential part. And I was wondering how Kant's political philosophy would play a part in his systematic philosophy. And I figured teleology must be a way to talk about it, but I didn't see anybody talking about it. So that led me to see, like, let me see what teleology is actually doing for Kant and Kant's political philosophy. But I guess the other path, which is less... Uh, less like many other Kantians, I um, had a great and very diverse um, community of interlocutors in academia, uh, especially I've been reading feminist philosophy, philosophers of race and postcolonial and decolonial thought, as well as political theorists. So I feel like I'm coming at Kant's political philosophy from those perspectives, having read uh, feminist philosophers of race on Kant's moral and political philosophy. And I see my job as sort of as building a bridge between those feminist and critical philosophy of race interpretations of Kant and Kant studies more sort of squarely. So I want to investigate what remains of Kantian political philosophy today, given given the terrain of political philosophy, Kant's importance to it, etc. So I guess that's what led me to, to write this book, um, to figure out what theology does for Kant and what we have of Kant after reading the feminist uh, philosophy of race and postcolonial critiques. Yeah, it's funny because it that really comes through in the reading, even though thematizing feminist critiques is not the project of the book. Mm-hmm. That's not what you're up to, but it really does come through that that is um, in your mind as you're, as you're producing this book. No, that's, yeah, that's great. I'm glad because I don't explicitly talk about it, but I feel like the fact that I was able to formulate uh, this part of Kant's political philosophy as his non-ideal theory of politics, I think that comes through from um, reading Charles Mills, reading Stella Sanford, uh, the feminist critiques, reading Irigaray on Kant, etc. So yeah, I, I, and Spivak, of course. So I think, yeah, I'm glad that it comes through. Yeah, no, it's interesting because, as I said, you don't you, you don't do a huge exegesis of any of those thinkers, but mm-hmm. it's clear they're in the background of the conversation you're having. Yeah, great. Um, and so you argue that one can't really understand Kant's political theory without understanding his philosophy of history. Mm-hmm. Um, so would you just explain why you think that is, and along the way, perhaps sketch what you think Kant's philosophy of history is? Yeah, uh, great. So I guess. One way that, so if you ask anyone who's not a Kant scholar, but who's always familiar with Kant, uh, Kant's political philosophy, they would say, oh, he has an ideal theory. Um, his up, the upshot of Kant's political philosophy is cosmopolitanism. Uh, so, so, and his philosophy of right gives us this like uh, ideals of po- politics that we should aim for, etc. But I think that uh, when we look at Kant talking about uh, or using teleology in any writing, like on talking about history, talking about anthropology or culture, we see that he also wants to know if these political ideals are feasible. Um, and it's, it's true even for his ethics, right? So we, we are used to saying ought implies can, uh, and we kind of trace it back to Kant. Like, of course, on the one hand, the way that Kant formulates the oughts, the ideals, does imply can, otherwise they cannot be imperatives. Um, But on the other hand, I think Kant is further interested in material uh, feasibility of these ideals and and sort of giving us a sketch or a map of how to bring them about because he he realizes, right, we're not yet fully rational agents. We're on our way to 
uh, be fully uh, rational agents. And in the meantime, what we need to do uh, while following these imperatives might differ depending on how far we are on this um, scale. So he reflects on what is the case and what has been the case. And one, one thing that is um, peculiar to me, the, his first essay on cosmopolitanism, the idea for a universal history with a cosmopolitan aim, is actually not an essay on politics. It is an essay on history and how to understand how to read history. It's more of a sort of a historiography question, like does history make sense? Um, where, where, are, where are we coming from? Where are things going? It's kind of like how, the, how does everything hang together um, in history, etc. So when I read, when I do a close reading of this text, I see him actually talking about philosophy of history more than uh, political philosophy. So he's asking, does history have any meaning or are we doomed to repeat our mistakes and, you know, uh, not know if we have any any goal we're working towards? Uh, one way that I was thinking about this is uh, it's similar to how he points to, you know, so it's an it's an empirical question for him. What mm. is history? History is an empirical um, area, right? Like events that happened. But when you ask how do they hang together or how do these events make sense together, then it becomes a question of interpretation. And Kant's philosophy, the first critique, has a way of interpreting empirical data by means of these overarching goals. So I see him actually using a principle of his epistemology from the first critique while talking about history. So he has a philosophy of history that is teleological, that is, it has a beginning and a middle and an end, but he doesn't claim that this is really how history works. He's saying that it is in our interest to make meaning in this sense, to, to project this meaning onto the history so that we can make our political goals feasible, feasible, or we can see that they can be feasible. Because if history is just a random uh, collection of empirical facts, this happened and then this happened and this happened with no reason whatsoever, then we get, we, we get kind of... Um, sort of uh, uh, pessimistic about it. We kind of get skeptical, like, is there any meaning to any of my actions? Um, oh my God, my cat is mammy. Okay, I'll make a note. Uh, okay, we're good. So we are asking, uh, the, the, the history as a whole makes sense? And he says, yes, but not because, you know, there's a divine order behind all of the things. It's because it's in our interest as human beings, you know, situated in this world, acting in certain ways, to assume that history makes sense, that history has a goal, uh, so that we can actually say, okay, achieving uh, peace is a real feasible goal. Achieving cosmopolitanism is a feasible goal. So his hist philosophy of history, I think, is kind of the backbone of his political philosophy. And I'm following a little bit uh, Wendy Brown here when she, she talks completely about something else, about this sort of post-structural ideas of, uh, you know, the, the end of history, etc. But the idea in Wendy Brown, I guess, is that when we don't have a robust understanding of history, uh, either as meaningful or as contributing to the present moment, we are unable to have uh, achievable, feasible, and realistic uh, political ideals. So I do see Kant actually focusing on history um, in order to um, sort of have a political philosophy of cosmopolitanism. So his, his um, philosophy of history posits then, you know, it, 
we can't be just say everything is fully determined. We still have some agency in bringing about certain actions, but we are not the full agents of everything in history. Rather, we are full agents of how we understand history, how we interpret history. So it's to our interest to interpret it as meaningful and going somewhere so that we can uh, act accordingly and shape it within um, our goals. Yeah, and the where it's going, you talk about as an imaginary focal point. Yeah. Um, and so, so could you talk first, I guess, a little bit about that imaginary focal point? And then you talk about um, a way we can use that imaginary focal point in a way that gets around or, or avoids Kant's Eurocentrism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we could talk, I guess, first what it is and then how Kant wraps it up with a certain Eurocentrism and then how you think we can, we can do better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so it's a funny, so there's a funny moment in this essay, Idea for Universal History at the end when he says, isn't it weird that I'm trying to tell a story of universal history, which history of the universe in his mind, a world history, which I'll say more about how that's actually not universal. But um, so he's trying to say, okay, this is the history of the universe. I can tell it how it began, how it how it should end, etc. But he says, it's weird. It is as if I'm writing fiction. I'm writing a novel about how history ought to happen. And he's aware of that. He's aware that we are writing a story about how history should work, etc. So in a way, when he says, you know, the, the end goal of history or the history has this aim, has this telos, which is a cosmopolitan world order uh, on a global scale, you know, uh, he is saying that it is it is a uh, focal point that we project. It is something that we imagine in order to make our actions here and now meaningful. So it is this imaginary focal point that all of history can be made meaningful around this heuristic of cosmopolitan world order. And this gives us a way to see even, you know, uh, which I know we'll get to later, uh, even wars and um, inequality, etc., as having some kind of purpose toward working out toward making us work out a cosmopolitan peaceful world order so um because it's a hermeneutic so because his philosophy of history has this hermeneutic of meaning making i take cosmopolitanism as this meaning making guiding thread that we imagine so that we can make sense of our lives right now because otherwise we fall into as i said it doesn't make any sense oh no history does what it does it's beyond my control it's all the forces beyond my control so i'm skeptical if i have any impact in the world or i can say if i believe that history has a definitely a purpose but it may be unbeknownst to me it's a divine order etc then i'm becoming dogmatic So Kant gives us a way to uh, negotiate the skepticism and dogmatism in history and says, okay, yes, we do not know exactly what the goal of history is because we don't know God's mind. Um, We don't actually experience the world as it is in itself. Um, But it doesn't mean we have to fall into some kind of uh, despair or skepticism as to whether or not there's any meaning at all. So there has to be some meaning. And this meaning has to come from our willingness to uh, make our actions to have an impact here. So so I read cosmopolitanism. That's my, one of the bigger claims of the book, that cosmopolitanism is not a moral goal for Kant. As I said earlier, if you ask anyone what Kant's political philosophy is about, they would say, oh, it's about 
cosmopolitanism. It's a moral egalitarian ideal. So one of the bigger claims of the book is that it's not a moral uh, claim. It is not an end goal in itself, but cosmopolitanism, and in case of his philosophy of history, is just a guiding thread to make sense of history. So it's an imaginary focal point, I call it, uh, following some of the things in the first critique um, that makes sense to it. Now, uh, does that make sense in terms of the imaginary focal yeah, point? No, it yeah. Was, yeah, it was because it was so interesting when I was reading the book because that threading threading a path between skepticism and dogmatism was so familiar to me from my mm-hmm. reading of Kant, right, and my mm-hmm, education mm-hmm. of Kant. But to see how you developed that in the philosophy of history was was quite new to me. Oh, cool. Yeah, thanks. Uh, but so, yeah, that brings me to this. Okay, if cosmopolitanism is not an end in itself for Kant's political theory, and actually uh, something I want to say, and because it's such a big, weird claim for Kantians, um, the biggest ideal, the hype, the end in itself in Kant's political philosophy is peace. So uh, that's the highest order ideal. And he identifies cosmopolitanism as first in the in the first uh, few uh, chapters of the book, I say in history, as this narrative of history that makes our political goal of peace feasible. He imagines peace to be feasible only under a cosmopolitan uh, world order. So that sounds all great, um, except when we get to, when we look at how he actually talks about the universality of this universal history he's talking about, he, um, he only has in mind the European civilizations and their constitutional uh, progress. So he says, you know, if we start with the Greeks, then we have the Romans and we have the barbarians for a while, and then... Uh, now, finally, we have Age of Enlightenment and its institutions. So that, to him, in a nutshell, is the essence of cosmopolitan world order. He said, uh, and cosmopolitan, and that that also that is all that includes uh, that is all that is included in universal history or world history. He has he says two things. One, in addition, he says two things. One. So you might think, oh, so he's just taking Europe as a model. That's fine. Maybe that's the best model that is available to him or that's the only model available to him. But he goes further than that. He says two things. One, uh, he said one day Europe will give law to the entire world. Um, So that's a claim that is accepted by a lot of Kant scholars to be a very sort of, um, uh, uh, what is the term? paternalistic, you know, colonial kind of move that Europe has the best laws, therefore it's going to give law to everyone else. And But he also says in, when he's t- constructing this history according to the cosmopolitan guiding thread, world his supposedly universal, supposedly world history, he says, you know, we we know we don't need to sort of collect histories of non-Western uh, civilizations. We can just see what the Western civilizations tell us about them. And that 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 will be fine for for our history to be universal or world history. So, in other words, like the the voices of non-Western peoples or how they conceptualize history, how they tell their own story, etc., doesn't matter. We're just gonna sort of squeeze it into our one uh, model of cosmopolitan. Um, guiding thread from Greeks to Romans to barbarians to Europe. Uh, so that that makes his idea of universal history not so universal after all. Um, it seems to be just sort of based on the European model. And I talk about this issue of Eurocentrism because a lot of times Kant scholars want to say, 
you know, um, this Eurocentrism is just a conceptual problem. You know, uh, let's say Kant only had in mind Europe for his cosmopolitan world order, but we know better now and we can think of it as an actual global project. I resist that sort of conceptual correction because I think that the very way in which he is imagining this guiding thread is embedded in a particular understanding of history as progressive history as beginning uh, having a beginning a middle and an end and a particular way of um, temporality uh, as a result so I think if we were to sort of rework Kant's um, uh, universal history we would if you if you are interested in universal history first of all this is where i have a decolonial move that's not in the book but that's how i was thinking about it uh we want to get away from universality so that is one um one story that everything else kind of has to fit into it, but we want to move towards pluriversality. We want to have multiple narratives of history, uh, multiple political agendas, and and sort of plurality of voices telling us their histories as opposed to hearing these histories only from Western sources. So um, to rework Kant's Eurocentricism when he's imagining history to be this thing we need both conceptual work, of course, but we all we need um, uh, some empirical work to collect other histories and see, given those teleologies. And there's a really great book, um, Modern Teleologies from the Third World, by Dibesh Chakrabarty, who talks about, you know, for instance, India has multiple narratives of of uh, pre-colonial India, colonial India, and post-colonial India. Uh, they they all work together, but they, they, there's not just one, right? That's not just the one India that, uh, for instance, Britain told us about. So I am curious to see how, if we took those different narratives, different histories, and different sort of teleological um little capsules, uh, um, what kind of political goals we would come up with that may or may not be uh, voiced as cosmopolitanism, right? So uh, does that make sense? So it's like there's a diversity of um, historical narratives and it would require a, a multiplicity of political agendas if we were kind of keeping the relationship between history and politics, but we are kind of trying to correct for uh, Kant's Eurocentricism. Yeah, no, that's where I saw you making this distinction between Kantianism and Kant, that Kant Mm -hmm. has this insight that history funds a political agenda, Mm -hmm. but we don't have to follow the history that he tells to the political agenda he arrives at. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that insight of his that it's going to matter the histories we tell. And you talk about needing multiple narratives of history that will give rise to a plurality Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. of political agendas. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess it's not, so one thing that, you know, I was, I always have to answer what is meant by Eurocentricism. And I just want to kind of emphasize still, it's not just that his choice of, you know, his, his sample it's not just that his sample is the European civilizations or countries. It's just he is by making that the model of all history, he is uh, imposing it upon the rest of the world. And he, the, the, the flip side of this, of course, choosing Europe as the model is the, uh, 
dehumanization and negation of the non-European ways of telling history or that they're written histories in their own wars. So that's, I mean, a very sort of actual Eurocentrism at play, Scott. It's not just that his ideas are provincial, specific to Europe. It is that as well. But I'm trying to make a bigger claim that the the whole way in which he's imagining history is so one-sided that it necessarily leaves out um, and sort of denigrates other ways of uh, thinking about history. Right, right. Even the model of progress that history has that linearity. Yes, yes, exactly. Right. And that's that's Amy Allen's sort of uh, new book about, right, uh, End of Progress. That's where she tries to sort of make an intervention into critical theory to say progress is something we take for granted, but it has its roots in this Kantian idea. Progress looks exactly like this, you know? Right. Um, yeah. Right. And that, and that history moves Mm-hmm. in one direction yes exactly exactly yeah. I, was, yeah. I was thinking about nick Estes' book um our past as the future yes which if you have a yeah. linear conception of history that's going to be hard to even engage yeah. with the book yeah yes yeah exactly exactly that's that's where i yeah that's my new work is going in that direction uh cool yeah yeah um okay so you talk a lot about kant's organic explanations um and you're arguing this is not just a metaphorical flourish in his thinking that he mm-hmm. doesn't just happen to be really interested in organisms and so uses them as metaphors, but rather he is dissatisfied with mechanistic and moral explanations mm-hmm. for understanding human collective life. And so he goes mm-hmm. to these organic mm-hmm. explanations. So will you talk about um, why you think these organic explanations are so important? And will you connect it then back to the idea that cosmopolitanism is not an end for Kant, but a means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that is again like a big claim. I'm realizing the book makes a lot of big claims, but it's, so, it's okay. I guess. So motivated, it's, it's so interesting because by the time you say a big claim, you're almost you just. Or my experience was, I was like, that seems totally right. You know, I wasn't like, oh no, something something weird has happened here. Yeah, good. Uh, I'm glad. Um, so I guess. A couple of ways I think about this one. I don't want to reduce, and that there's a good sort of movement on this in Kant scholarship as well. I don't want to reduce Kant's political philosophy to his moral philosophy. Um, there's a school of thought that kind of says, okay, um, you know, groundwork and the second critique, critique of practical reason, are where we get all the politics. Uh, but if we if we if we do that, then all we get is this, you know, the categorical imperative should determine all our actions, including political uh, ones, etc. But of course, it is an ideal theory, right? We are not yet fully rational moral beings for Kant. So sure, let's say it gives us an ideal political theory, but it doesn't help us right now. Like I can't go to a politician and say, hey, uh, follow the categorical imperative, okay? You know, like, so that that's just not going to work. Um, and we wish we could sometimes. Yes, it would say, of course. Yeah, of course. That is not, that is insufficient, let's say. It's not, it's, it's, it's necessary, but it's insufficient. Um, we need something more that understands the, 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 the human nature and where we're coming from. And that's where I, I kind of um, turn to Kant's anthropology, where he, you know, he lectured on anthropology and geography throughout his entire career. They were very popular. He published his anthropology from a pragmatic point of view uh, in his lifetime. Um, and uh, he thinks, you know, that the cosmopolitan 
education has to include a study of human nature from this cosmopolitan or co- uh, from a pragmatic perspective to see like how human beings can be made into good agents and good moral agents. So he does have a developmental account of humanity. It's not that we are either rational or not. We can achieve rationality. Um, so this is kind of what a lot of Kant scholars are saying, that Kant's impure ethics or the second part of Kant's ethics and politics is that, yes, we have the ideals. Yes, we have the oughts. Yes, we have the categorical imperative and this ration, rational agents that are ends in themselves. But we also have a developmental account in Kant's anthropology, where he wants to say human beings transition from being under the influence of purely natural inclinations to sort of um, making a culture for themselves that is more suitable for rational goals and ends. So to me, organism is a perfect way to talk about uh, this transition uh, not in, only in a biological sense, but in an anthropological sense, because anytime, so in the texts, anytime he talks about, you know, an organism-like state, like a state that is like a body with organs or body with a soul, it's good. Anytime he talks about a political change in the form of a reform that is organic, that's good. Whereas if it is a machine-like state, like if it's a handmill, it's bad, it's, um, you know, it's violent. And and likewise, he also thinks revolutions are bad because they're too violent and machine-like. So I was inspired by this, and I and and yeah. So it could just be a metaphorical um, flourish in his thinking. But I think the organic, so taking the organic model seriously, gives us a way to think about human beings in political situations. That is, we are partially biologically determined beings. We have desires, we have inclinations. Um, For Kant, of course, we have to sort of uh, sublimate them or we have to sort of um, put them aside and, and aspire toward rational goals. And Part of the problem is that he's, of course, thinking reason and emotion um, as opposites, um, which I don't want to get into this day, but let's say that that is the case. But he, he wants us to transition, right? Human development consists in leaving nature behind uh, and creating a sort of culture that is most suitable for a you know, also rational being ourselves. That is not like just animals. Animals only create cultures, let's say, he wouldn't call it culture, but animals only create kinds of communities that are uh, end-oriented, like I mean, they use everything as a means to get there, etc. Whereas Kant wants us to develop as moral beings where we give law to ourselves. We don't have to follow anybody else, etc. But so, but the then the human if human being is an organism then uh, and if if the states are you know the the political states are made up of these organisms that have desires on the one hand and reason on the other hand then to get to a sort of good political state will require a specific way of working out of our desires specific way of working out of our nature so it's a particular transition a particular cultural transition from nature to culture. And I want to emphasize this because um, that's something we don't see a lot. And that's so people don't want to take into account Kant's anthropology when we talk about his moral philosophy or history, because his anthropology has all these 
deplorable claims about the hierarchy of human beings, uh, Europeans, especially Northern and Western Europeans, being the most uh, morally and culturally developed people. Uh, that's where we find, you know, uh, black people, brown people, women to be not fully developed uh, human beings. So in a way, it's, it's kind of this dichotomy of nature and culture that allows him to say, you know, women, uh, people of color, black people, colonized people, oriental people, all of these people never made the transition to culture. They are living too close to nature. So when, when we bring that, it makes more sense for us to say, oh, okay, so Kant's culture of cosmopolitanism, which is something like, so he wants cosmopolitanism to be based on a culture of skill and industry, um, is very peculiar because it only takes into account those human beings who happen to be able to make the transition from nature to culture and furthermore develop a culture of skill and industry that is necessary for an actual true cosmopolitanism. So it's not that, again, once again, it's the same kind of... Uh, uh, problem, he's taking into account one form of cultural um, transition, culture of skill and industry, as he defines them as like work, labor, as opposed to enjoyment, laziness, happiness, right? So he's saying that is the only way to, to transition from nature to culture, and that's the only kind of culture that will give rise to a cosmopolitan world order. So that's where we get another sort of Eurocentric idea of uh, culture, uh, because this, uh, this, this cosmopolitan culture, he talks about culture of skill, culture of industry, are loaded terms. And especially if you think about these days when um, political theorists talk about, oh, the third world has a culture of poverty, or, or, or like Africa, and, and I, I can't believe this happened, but this is a 2018 article I read um, that Africa, it, it said in this way, Africa has a resource curse. That's why they cannot uh, develop. So I was like, these, these are the remnants of how Kant is thinking about culture, right? That cult, some people have a culture that's just not suitable for progress, that's not suitable for being cosmopolitan citizens of the world. Um, so I wanted to make sure that we are uh, getting back to the sort of the, the theory of human nature, uh, this cultural anthropology that underlies Kant's political philosophy. And I think that uh, taking this organic language or thinking of human beings as this particular kind of organisms uh, is helpful for that. That's why I take that seriously as opposed to just the metaphor. Right. Yeah. And it's so interesting how that, that insight seems so um, important. And then the way that it gets framed in terms of a culture of skill and industry shows just how non-multicultural Kant's cosmopolitanism mm -hmm. is. There's no robustly multicultural world order in his mm -hmm. view, even though he seems to be taking this very, um, making a very important observation about humans and development. Mm -hmm. Culture for yeah, him. Yeah. yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, sorry. Yeah, no, just development as organic life that we have developmental tendencies. and Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, he doesn't think culture in the way that we think of it right now. He thinks of culture specific is a, is a sort of a yeah organic development out of nature. So there has been new books who try to argue that Kant does have a multicultural uh, view. You know, culture is just a generic term for all kinds of culture, etc. But yeah, when we look at what he prioritizes and says is the, the the necessary uh, kind of culture for true cosmopolitanism. He's saying it's the kind where you develop your skills and you have labor and industry. Otherwise, you're letting your talents go to waste. And we, we see that in the uh, groundwork of the metaphysics of morals when he says, you know, the South Sea Islanders are just sitting and they're lazy. So we can infer, oh, then they don't have the culture that is necessary for cosmopolitanism, right? In the third critique, when he talks about the... Uh, indigenous uh, peoples of Australia, uh, New Zealand, he says, oh, they're, it's unclear if they have any contributions to culture of skill. You know, they're, 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 therefore, their life uh, doesn't have a lot of value. So th- this is, you know, this just kind of confirms my suspicion that he does have this developmental view of human beings. And co- what, what he means by culture is something very specific. It's not a generic term for just uh, human condition. Yeah, he he accepts that very old story about um, people outside of Europe being mm-hmm. in a state of nature. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, well, so this, I think, relates to, you want to push back on scholars who have read Kant as critical of colonialism. Mm-hmm. Um, and you say that if we take his, the way he's talking about commerce seriously, then we can't see him as as a, a very good critic of colonialism, actually. Yeah. Um, so will you just talk about how he sees commerce, um, how that ties into his political geography, and and how that causes you to push back on readings of, of Kant as a, a critical scholar of colonialism? Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I think that he is critical of colonialism, but not as much as people think. Or he's he's critical of a particular kind of colonialism that is uh, violent and forceful. Uh, but he's not cr- critical of uh, commercial colonialism or, or or something like that. So I guess sort of to back it up, I come to I come to this critique through uh, his idea of hospitality, and and a lot of people say you know Kant has this universal global idea of hospitality, which is perhaps the most important ideal of his political theory, uh, and that serves as a way to critique uh, uh, colonialism because, you know, you have to be uh, hospitable to your guests, right? You have to uh, be nice uh, to people who come to visit. You have to, uh, op- you, you know, so, so Shayla Ben-Habib uh, most famously argues for hospitality as a human right, and she argues that the Kantian notion of hospitality should give rise to like open borders or like uh, refugee rights to immigration and citizenship, etc. But if you look at it, so if you look at how Kant is talking about hospitality, it's very circumscribed. It's um, first of all, he it comes up in the context of what should be the very general principle of how we interact with each other. Uh, because we live on a sphere and uh, we have to kind of interact with each other, we have limited resources, we'll come into contact more uh, sooner or later. But he says, okay, we should be minimally hospitable to each other. But then when he when he talks about the, the specifics of what this hospitality entails, we usually imagine, oh, like refugees or immigrants or something like that. But he's actually talking about 
people from less commercialized nations having to be nice to the people who come to their shores for trade. So when he says, uh, let's see... So in the, I'm thinking mostly the Perpetual Peace essay on this um, when he talks about, uh, you know, be, you should be hospitable to visitor nations, etc. The specific thing he's talking about after he condemned certain forms of um, colonialism that, that, that are violent, etc. He says, but nonetheless, right, um, the... Uh, we should be nice to people who come and, and the right of hospitality specifically is restricted to the right of commerce. So he's saying like be hospitable to people who are trying to sell you things. Right? <laughs> so he's, he's, he's not, he's not like, it's not what we imagine this noble, Oh, be nice to people who have a life or death situation back at home or, you know, uh, or, or, or like that in, in a country where you created conditions of war and therefore now you have to take them in. That's, that's not at all what he has in mind. He simply has in mind this right to peaceful commerce. That's what the right of hospitality is. Um, you know, so so that it doesn't apply to people unless they are seeking to travel or commerce. And the way that he talks about it, there'll be people uh, who there are the visiting nations and they are the host nations. And you can imagine, given his sort of uh, geopolitical context, the visiting nations are the colonial powers, and the host nations are the colonized or or as pre-colonized nations, etc. So he's telling. You know, you had to, the, the the to be colonized. Be nice to people who come to sell you things, because that's going to lead to peace, right? So, it's kind of a. I mean, I don't know what kind of a critique of colonialism that is. So, like, I think we're making too much of it when when we sort of take it as a, oh, he condemns colonialism and hospitality is this huge idea coming out of his moral philosophy. First of all, hospitality uh, is not mentioned in his moral or ethical writings at all. It's specifically only in the context of his political philosophy. It only comes in the context of having to interact with people on a on a limited um, space. And, and second of all, it is limited. It's a right of the visiting nations to, to expect hospitality. So it's not a reciprocal right. It's not a universal or even a global right. It's, it only sort of is, is relevant if you're trying to sell things or if people are coming to your shores uh, for commercial activity. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, it, really, it reminds me very much of um, Francisco de Vitoria. Mm-hmm. And early in the Spanish colonization of the Americas, they're trying to figure out, are indigenous people human? Mm-hmm. And he says, yes, of course, they're human. They're rational. Um, but if they don't give us hospitality when we come, then we can take their stuff and their land in mm-hmm. particular. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like so lots of people cite him as a really great person for defending the humanity of indigenous people, uh-huh. which is true, but it's to set up a situation in which colonization is possible. Exactly. So I think that Kant follows Victoria. There's a lot of literature, people who do more sort of history of ideas. There's a lot of literature that does tie it back exactly to Victoria, to this mm-hmm. idea of, yeah, hospitality is directly tied to commercial colonialism. Like it's not a remedy. It's actually complicit or it's actually... Um, what's the word? It's a handmaiden, or I, I can't think of a better word right now, but it's a tool of colonialism. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 
Um, and so you use this, I noticed this term honesty coming up a lot in the book and you talk mm -hmm. about um, that if we read Kant in a certain way with this honesty, we can achieve a more honest Kantian political philosophy um, and that it's through reading him as a non-ideal theorist that we have mm -hmm. to see not just the ideal side, but the non-ideal side. Mm -hmm. um, and so will you talk about what you mean by honesty there mm -hmm. and, and what that gets us? Yeah. Um, so one of the, so you would be surprised to hear how um, Kant scholars are are sort of debating whether or not Kant uh, had racist views, whether or not we can use Kantianism or Kantian ideas to combat racism or colonialism or imperialism uh, or, or sexism, etc. Um, so I want to sort of step back a little and say, look, Kant, Kant's ideas, including this hospitality, his idea of progress and his philosophy of history, um, his idea of a specific kind of culture as valued over others, these are complicit in a certain way of creating the world in which we live right now. Um, and that is the sort of what my colleague at Emory, Rocio Zambrana, calls the afterlife of coloniality. So Kantian ideas are responsible and complicit, it, responsible for and complicit in this world we live in, this world in which we have to deal with this aftermath of coloniality, even though there isn't, you know, colonialism in the legal political sense, we are still um, living in the aftermath of coloniality. So I guess I want people to take a step back, especially people working on or with Kant, take a step back and understand Kant's role in creating this world before we rush to sort of using Kant positively as a sort of like expecting the term Kantian cosmopolitanism to be multicultural and egalitarian, etc. I want us to sort of reckon, uh, reckon with this idea that Kant's is Eurocentric. All of these political ideals are at best only applicable to the specific sample of Europe and European nations. And at worst, and I think I try to sort of argue for that more, that they uh, they are prioritizing that as a model over others at the expense of multiplicity of other models of history, culture, or, or, or um, uh, geography or political geography. So I guess I just want us to sort of shift the debates on um, Kant and race right now from discuss discussing, you know, at what point did he change his mind about, you know, black people? Uh, did he actually think women can be citizens? Maybe he didn't, but come on, give him a break. He was just a man of his time, right? So I am very tired of debating these things, which have been the sort of terrain of uh, Kant studies for a few decades, despite the work being done by feminists and, and post-colonial thinkers and philosophers of race sort of uh, challenging us. So to, to me, um, being more honest about Kant will first in, you know, include being honest about his ideas role in creating this mess uh, in which we live, um, but also um, it's sort of, uh, we have to, when we hear these ideas, especially in, you know, uh, and it, it, it does, it is relevant in this context that I'm from Turkey. Uh, when we hear these words like uh, cosmopolitanism, human rights, European Union, 
United Nations, World Bank, International Monetary Fund, like these agents of globalism and globalization, etc. We don't hear the sort of first and foremost egalitarian multicultural utopia. We hear the sort of this this uh, sedimented history of uh, colonialism and imperialism in these terms. And I think that I'm trying to sort of show um, an honest Kantianism would have to reckon with the sedimented history in Kantian philosophy. Uh, and then we, we'll see what happens with that. We have to kind of sit with this for a while before we, before we sort of rush to making Kant the champion of egalitarianism or multiculturalism. Yeah. And it was interesting as I was reading the book, um, it was really clear there's a developmental story, right, that Kant wants to see exported mm-hmm. everywhere. Mm-hmm. And that I think, you know, all of those organizations that you named mm-hmm. have that story animating mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. in material practice mm-hmm. currently. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I was reading your work and you were facing these challenges in Kant, I got so much more out of Kant through how you faced them <laughs> than, than I think I would have if you'd been like, oh, no, don't worry about what he says about women or about, um, you know, the South Sea Islanders, don't worry, but don't look here. It's not important. Like you actually take into account why he's saying that what is empirically and conceptually motivating him Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in that moment. And I got, so I got a much clearer picture actually of what Kant is up to, why it wasn't like all of a sudden he just said something racist out of nowhere. He's actually Mm -hmm. motivated Mm -hmm. internally to his own project Mm -hmm. to that the world. That's great to hear because I also don't want to... So in my other work, I talk about how to work with Kant or Kantian concepts. And I also don't want to fall into the trap of this, either he's a raging racist and therefore all of his philosophy should be discarded and not used and it's it's unimportant, etc. Or, yeah, don't look there. He, that's just an accident, you know. So like I do want to show that it's crucial to how he formulated his most important uh, seemingly egalitarian ideas, his racism and Eurocentricism and sexism. But I also want to say we are reading him. uh, We have to contend with this. We have to reckon with this if we want to move forward because he had a hand in exactly sort of constructing these these institutions. That's one sort of clear material example of how Kantianism is still very much alive in our lives. So I do want to get out of this either Kant is racist and um, nothing he says can be taken seriously or he's not racist, he's awesome and, you know, like uh, we just have to discard the bad parts and take the good parts. So I want us to, the, the honest Kantianism for me is to take the good and the bad and the ugly, I think I say it at some point in the book, that, that a full Kant that makes more sense for our world and how, how we have kind of come to um, come to be in this world. Yeah, no, it, it's striking in the book how much respect you have for Kant and how critical you are of of exactly how he comes to the views that he does, right? Like, so you you do both, um, and that comes through really clearly. It's good. That's good. Because I, I, I was worried that it would go the opposite way. It would look like to the Kant scholars, it would look like I'm too critical, and it would look like to the decolonial thinkers, I'm not critical enough. So hopefully I, yeah, I don't think like to, like, throw Kant out in a way, because <laughs> yeah. I like, Know, I have that like tendency, I guess, in my own thinking. But I, so I learned a lot from how you don't just say, "Let's get rid of them." Let's understand how this works and what's what's valuable in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hope so. Uh, yeah, thanks. Yeah, so I think you, I think you did walk that line. Okay, good. Uh, yeah. Um, okay. Well, so what are you working on now? Uh, a lot of things. So um, 
I am with a collective of brilliant scholars uh, revising the uh, Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy on Continental Feminism. That's something of an interest and a background of mine. Uh, so we're doing that. I'm writing some articles. I was invited to write some articles on Kant and feminism based on my work on this um, that I published on Spivak and Kant, for instance, and sort of trying to think of like, again, to, to sort of maybe I'm willing to throw out Kant, but when people ask me to write, um, you know, a, an entry on Kant and feminism, I kind of want to figure out how to talk about that and not, you know, uh, in a way Kant will be a good foil to talk about how feminism should not work. Uh, so mm. there's something I'm working on, but the, but the, the general project, the second sort of bigger project I'm thinking about is how, how some of these political concepts and vocabularies or tools or theories travel. Um, and, and, and conversely, I want to study political philosophy from the global south. So I want to understand different notions of history and historicity and temporality, like where much what you mentioned, the book, that Our Past is Our Future, um, you know, or this modern teleologies of the third world, um, so I want to understand how the global South uses some of these political concepts, because in a way, I, I do think that coloniality shaped the way that we think in a way in political philosophy. So these concepts do travel, but they're not always taken up the same way uh, or that they are not. Uh, or that, or that I want to be respectful. I want to be anti-Kantian about this and not say like this is the exact way in which this this uh, concept should work, or this is the exact way in which this political idea should be understood and developed. Right. So I want to sort of do some uh, political theory from below uh, and and see what kind of concepts and vocabularies political thinkers from the global south are finding useful, finding useful, use, useless, um, or or kind of discarding or taking up in what we call this afterlife of coloniality. Interesting. Yeah. So is are you going to look at, at the concept of sovereignty? Do you... I will. Yeah, I will look at uh, sovereignty. I, I did have a piece that came out in an edited volume on hospitality where I talked about how, you know, uh, the current Syrian refugee crisis uh, and its uh, sort of repercussions in Europe uh relate to how Kant talked about hospitality. So Angela Merkel uh you know, is, is, you know, heralded as the angel of hospitality or something like that. But actually behind closed doors, there's a commercial agreement between Germany and Turkey that's uh, putting these refugees in Turkey, uh, you know, and, and there's a money monetary value. So Germany is giving a certain amount of money to Turkey to keep these refugees out of uh, Europe's soil. So, um, yeah, I'm interested in like what is... Uh, and, and why are we thinking, I think I would blame Khan for this as well, why are we thinking in terms of nation states, why are we thinking in terms of um, sovereignty as the most important concept of political philosophy and what we get out of it, like, um, and, and so like autonomy is an important part of sovereignty and and. and indigenous uh, political philosophy conceptualized autonomy very differently than Kant, because for Kant, autonomy is getting out of nature, 
right? Uh, getting out of state of nature when you can give the law to yourself as opposed to letting nature tell you what to do, letting your nature, your feelings or inclinations, emotions tell you what to do. So I'm interested in these concepts like sovereignty, autonomy, uh, freedom, uh, and even hospitality that are not shaped by the Kantian or Anglo, uh, uh, Anglo-American uh, tr- traditions, but the other ones. Great, great. Well, um, I can't wait to talk to you about that project. Cool. Out in the world, yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for your time today. Um, This has been a real pleasure. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This has been super fun. Okay, thank you. Thank you.